I would argue that as consumers become more aware and more self-aware and more aware of the effects of the technologies they're using, and the, m- the more companies um, design their, their products to be well-being supportive, consumers are going to turn to those products. We're going to start, you know, they're going to start making decisions that favor this, I hope, and I think this makes sense, that favor those products that respect their psychological needs. Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Ampofo. On the show today, I'm here with Dorian Peters, the creative lead for the Positive Computing Lab at the University of Sydney. In this episode, we talk about positive computing and why the approach of designing digital experiences for well-being is becoming such an important topic. You should listen to this episode if you want to find out the importance of software on our mental health, what positive computing is, and why consumers should demand digital experiences that support positive psychological well-being. But first of all, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. We bring together the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how to be your best self in an age of digital distraction and information overload. If you're new to our show, then the best place to find out much more about us is at digitalmindfulness.net forward slash about, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from becoming more focused in a distracted world to habit building, overcoming digital distraction, cyberbullying, internet addiction, and much, much more. Okay, enjoy the show with Dorian Peters. Dorian, like, it is a total pleasure to have you here <laughs> at last on Digital last, Mindfulness. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. So welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's totally a pleasure. So Dorian, why don't we start at the beginning and have you introduce yourself to everyone and just tell us how you came to be working on well-being and computing. Mm. Well, um, I've been working in the general design area for, I guess, about 17 years now. So that's kind of been included interface design, interaction design, and then somewhat more recently user experience as that evolved. And for the first chunk of that. Um, I really focused on designing for education and for learning. How do you optimize design so that people learn as well as they possibly can? And and I still do that. Um, and I actually I actually have a book on um, interface design for learning for practitioners on that as well. But about four or five years ago, I really began asking the question, how could we be designing things in ways that better support human psychological well-being because I think it the question arose because we kind of collectively I should say as a society started becoming more aware of the negative effect, effects of that this technology was having on us as we began to use it more and get more and more of it and get more devices we're like whoa wait a minute why is this stressing me out uh, you know what well, this is so overwhelming this seems to be stealing my focus it's supposed to be making me more productive but is that what's really happening so I think we all began to start asking asking these questions and a lot of uh, books came out about the negative effects and etc. So really as a designer the obvious question is okay well how can we improve this situation with design? And um, so together with my colleague Rafael Calvo who's a software engineer so our skill sets always complemented um, we really began looking seriously at 
how technology creators like ourselves could begin designing deliberately to actually foster well-being. And, and in a way that was informed by the science that wasn't just kind of opinion-driven, but really was evidence-based. Um, and each year we move further down that path. And along the way, the topic, I would say interest in the topic has really, really dramatically grown. Um, and when I say design to support well-being, that's what we mean when we talk about positive computing. So I'm pretty excited because every year there seems to be a greater interest in this and more people getting involved in trying to make it happen. And I think that's basically the way of the future for uh, a really human-centered design. When you were talking, I mean, you mentioned it very briefly there, you were talking about um, um, that kind of positive computing is um, design for um, human, <clears throat> sorry, for human well-being. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about that a little bit more, like kind of what, what positive computing is and actually kind of what negative computing might be. Mm. <laughs> um, negative computing, that sounds so nefarious. Um, well, positive computing, at least, you know, how we've talked about it, is the field of research and practice in well-being supportive technology design. So we want to make it clear that it's not just specifically an app for happiness, but actually how do we design every single technology we use in a way that's going to support our psychological needs, respect our psychological needs. Um, and if you believe that well-being matters, then really it makes sense that our technology should be helping us in our quests to well-being instead of getting in our way. And yeah, and if our technologies are designed with no attention at all paid to their impact on our psychological health, it seems to me at least that we're failing somehow as technology designers. I know in Silicon Valley, people like to talk a lot about, oh, I'm doing it to make the world a better place, make the world a better place. <laughs> it's a cliche, it shows up in the television show and everything. And really, I want to say, well, be more specific. <laughs> and I think, I think for me, that's um, my pathway to that is really figuring out how we can support uh, thriving. So... Yeah, so our main, I guess, message uh, with this notion of positive computing is that, well, we can design for well-being, and we should. And um, it's a process, and it's not that we're there yet, but it's definitely something we should be heading towards. And from a consumer perspective, it's not just about what designers and developers can do, but from a consumer perspective, too, it's it's kind of like we should be demanding that the technologies we bring into our lives respect our psychological needs. It's like, come on, if if you're not that's a failure somehow, you know, this, this is an error, this is a bug, something's wrong, fix it, you know. <laughs> it's interesting though, Dorian, isn't it? Because when you do hear a lot of the rhetoric from um, designers or whatever, you know, you will yeah. hear people say that, you know, yeah, we want to impact lots and lots of people and we want to, yeah. you, know, um, you know, make a better world as it were. But what do you mm -hmm. think people currently design for? Well, you know... This has, there's been a, a progression and, and certainly one of the big, big things has always been productivity. I mean, the reason that things aren't designed for well-being now, it's not, it's not me being incredibly critical of technology. It, it's completely understandable. We just haven't gotten there yet, right? It, this, the evolution has to occur. And traditionally, we designed a lot for productivity. I mean, it was 15 years ago, we were, we as designers were still desperately trying to convince the industry to design things in for usability, you know? I mean, it was like really uh, revolutionary, you know? Oh, why are you going to pay so much? 
you know, pay so much attention to humans. I mean, what is that about? And now usability is like this really basic, you know, <laughs> thing. It's assumed. So, I mean, this had to progress gradually. And then in, in the middle of, of uh, probably the last decade, it was really user experience emerged, this concept. And so we kind of evolved. We matured to the point where we started thinking about how a human interacts with the technology and how design shapes that. And that's a much more sophisticated thinking in a sense. But the focus, even in UX, has still very much been on I mean, at best, satisfaction or hedonic pleasure, but also, you know, task completion and, and practical things. It's not that we've ever stepped in and, and really explicitly started talking about psychological well-being. So I really think that's now the next thing in line. That's the next era of, of UX and of really, truly human-centered uh, design. Do you think, um, as well, Dorian, that, like, I guess the, um, like the current way that companies are rewarded has something to do with this as well. I mean, companies are kind of rewarded for, uh, I wouldn't say kind of constantly innovating, but um, making, you know, <clears throat> improving productivity, right? Having people do more with less time, you know, people are, mm -hmm. companies are rewarded for um, having their apps, you know, for stickiness, basically, of their apps, which oh, doesn't yeah. necessarily correlate with psychological or emotional well-being. I definitely think that has a major impact and that's going to be one of the big challenges because a lot of times um, if we're optimizing user experience, it's because we want the user at the end of that to buy something or basically to achieve something that's a business goal and that's um, somehow more important than their well-being. You know, that might be the argument, is, you know, for we're profit-driven <laughs> kind of society overall. But I would argue that as consumers become more aware and more self-aware and more aware of the effects of the technologies they're using. And the, m the more companies um, design their, their products to be well-being supportive, consumers are going to turn to those products. We're going to start, you know, they're going to start making decisions that favor this, I hope, and I think this makes sense, that favor those products that respect their psychological needs. And, you know, you, you see that already kind of in small ways. People are kind of doing their best to hack the systems. Some of the obvious ones are the ad blockers, for example. And then some of the other subtle ones are like, oh, email is completely unrealistic about in terms of the expectations that it's um, led to in our lives. So I've gotten the most wonderful bounce back <laughs> emails from people like Dana Boyd, who's the media researcher um, who works at Microsoft, and it, she's fantastic. And she, I got one from her one time that was this really hysterical email about how I'm on leave and the, I'm a robot and I've eaten all of your emails. And so she, Dana's never going to see them. And <laughs> it, was just, it was just so funny, but I really respected this this decision she made to like, okay, kind of manage the expectations, set the boundaries that technology had kind of taken away. So people, this is people trying to kind of hack the system, right? Or trying to figure out how to manage things in a healthier way when the technology around us isn't really making that easy. So I think we're getting, people are going to uh, value technologies that, that do better at that, that do better at supporting what makes us feel better, what makes us 
drive. I think they're going to favor those products. So it'll end up being better for business in a sense. But certainly in the short term, there's always that challenge. And I have a lot of respect for social businesses, perhaps Mm. because of that, because they really open the doors to make things possible that are better for humanity that don't have to compete above all else with increasing profit, you know, so I think there's also potential there. Do you have any examples of <clears throat> technology that you see? I mean, I love what um, what Dana Boyd has done with her out of office, as it were, but do you have yes. any examples of um, just technologies <laughs> that, that are kind of, that do that, that do respect, um, kind of that do think about how to engage with humans differently in a way that uh-huh. helps them to flourish? Well, there are certainly kind of niche products that aim to solve problems, but I also like it when some of the big, hunky software (laughs) (laughs) do something. So um, I like when, and this is not new now, but when um, Microsoft Word added the focus view, that's like this, this little step, but obviously what it's doing is trying to declutter and clear and remove all that stuff that's stealing our focus, that's dragging our attention out. And and I liked to see that, you know, that kind of small thing. I know that um, Facebook over the past couple of years has been trying to improve their conflict resolution process. And, you know, there's business reasons for that too. It's, it's, it's not great for them when there's lots of people fighting on Facebook. <laughs> um, but also it, it was an opportunity to introduce kind of empathy supportive dialogue and stuff, which um, they've been experimenting with and so I think that's that's a really interesting um, example as well. So these are kind of small things in large technologies but I think it indicates that we're heading in a general direction. Dorian, one of the things that you were talking about was this whole way that technology is designed um, um, for productivity and for pleasure and you said like particularly particularly things like hedonic um, pleasure but yeah. um, I'm wondering what the effect is designing for things like that to kind of be more productive um, at all costs and kind of for hedonic pleasure because designing for pleasure sounds like something we'd all like yeah oh I don't mean that's a bad thing please <laughs> I don't mean designing for pleasure is a bad thing. I, I guess I was just saying that as far as UX has gone, it still kind of stops early. Um, that That's kind of what I meant. So designing for satisfaction and, you know, kind of uh, user satisfaction or happiness in the moment with that product is something. Um, but it's not the same as like supporting thriving or flourishing for everybody overall. So I think definitely with productivity, we've done a lot of shooting ourselves in the foot. So this idea that we thought for a long time, multitasking, oh my God, look how productive I am. I'm doing 10 things at once. And then the research comes out that no, um, (laughs) multitasking in fact doesn't work well at all. And we aren't more productive when we do it. And then, um, you know, the research that comes out and says, guess what? If you actually take a rest, (laughs) you're going to be more productive and things like that. And media multitasking, gosh, um, some of the research that I just encountered recently about if you're doing multiple media was like okay I'm playing my video game and watching TV it apparently has measurable effects on the structure of our brain um, that are negative and I thought wow maybe we all in the back of our head could feel that happening but to get 
uh, kind of neuroscientific research on that is really quite amazing. So a part of this is that it's also new. We've just been thrown into this unbelievably digital world and we're all making it up as we go along so the research the research is scrambling and you know trying to understand what's going on as fast as it can but it's just still so new it's it's going to take some time and i think as much as the, as we can learn as fast as we can the better for us and then if we can apply that to our lives then great but i actually i think that because the research is going to take some time i would say that the best thing we can do um is just to use technology as mindfully as possible. And I know this is preaching to the converted here, digital mindfulness, but but that's kind of the best way we have of doing our own research that's, you know, customized to ourselves because maybe we don't have the MRI machines to show brain structure changes from <laughs> multimedia tasking. But I bet if we're mindful, we can sit back and, and really become aware of what's happening and how that's probably not ideal and maybe um, be in persuaded to change how we do things. So I think that's really our best tool um, going forward as we await the research findings. So, I mean, so you were mentioning about um, um, becoming more mindful of how we live our, you know, digitized lives as it were. Um, yeah. How do you do it? Like, are you, are you <laughs> mindful of your kind of, of your wanderings, your digitized wanderings? Certainly not all the time. <laughs> I do make I do make an effort. The best thing I can do really is um, mindfulness practice. So I do try and do sitting meditation really and not nearly as often as I believe that I should. But I, I, I often notice that um, something, if I go for a break, <laughs> the whole rest thing, like going for... Um, holiday vacation you know this past year when I, I didn't have uh, much internet access and that was like this incredible blessing and <laughs> when I came when I came back I was able to kind of rethink how I used my technologies and my phone and this and that and 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 thought okay I don't want to get back into that space where there's no more white space in my life I'm a designer so I think in terms like white space and like all good design needs white space and and so do our lives because it's only with the space or with the silence that you can focus on the form or the noise you know it's that contrast and we need that space and that silence to incubate and to synthesize thoughts and that's how you get creative and that's how you get innovative if you're only ever taking in information and knee-jerk reacting to stimulus there's no time for any of that so I think if you can practice mindfulness you begin to see those things and and it feels really good when <laughs> when you're kind of in a more mindful state and it's like I've I've I heard somebody say once, if you're going to rush, rush slowly, and I can't remember who that was, but I loved that because it really does apply. Because when you are working mindfully, it's not that you're doing less; you're actually being far more productive, being far more precise and efficient. You're not doing any of the wasted stuff that probably makes you feel really busy and productive because <laughs> um, you're filling in all the space, but actually isn't effective. So yeah, I, I, I do try and I do do my my best, but it's it's an ongoing process. <laughs> <laughs> do you th do you think as well, Dorian, that um, kind of talking about mindfulness or being digitally mindful that um that it should this really should be something that should be taught in schools and oh gosh yes. schools like I don't kind of mean like yeah. you know with kids but I mean almost like design schools like as you're learning mm. to design um 
learning to be more mindful of what we what we design so that we end up designing better for human flourishing that's a fantastic idea and I like the idea of teaching it kids in schools too I mean just like we kind of have to it's increasingly important that we teach kids how to scrutinize the source of their information <laughs> and how they get facts or truth alternative or otherwise I think that it's also important that um, we teach them to be mindful of Everything, of course, they will benefit from mindfulness in general, but mindful of their technology use because it's so hard for them. Um, as adults, we can take these technologies that for us are new, compare our experience with them to our experience of life before them, <laughs> and kind of be really self-aware. But I mean, ask that of a 14-year-old who has only ever used an iPad and has nothing to compare it to and isn't at that place in their life when they can be like super hyper self-aware and, you know, meta thoughts and so forth. I mean, that's really unfair to expect that of them. So I think it'd be great to teach them as well. But yes, um, also designers and developers. And I mean, designers, as this is going to sound terribly biased, but I think they're fabulous people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, there's a huge interest in designing for good and UX for good. And people really want to do things that are meaningful and, and helpful. And so I think all the intentions are in the right place. And so I think they, uh, really, uh, well receive that kind of thing and I think designing mindfully would be well received as well. So Dorian what would you say then in this um, hyper-connected age are the most important human traits and how do we cultivate those? Yeah I mean that's a big question. I th I, I'm, I'm quite a fan of wisdom and compassion. <laughs> It's nothing, it's nothing small <laughs> it's, but it does cover all your bases <laughs> and uh, um, I think that when it comes to the wisdom thing, definitely coming back to mindfulness for that one. I think we can be our wisest when we're the most mindful because that's when we can attend to everything um, and think the most clearly and attend to the, the human beings around us, the other situations around us and think um, from the perspective of a bigger picture. Um, and uh, in terms of compassion, that one's really interesting for me because it's not the same as empathy and a lot of people don't realize that. And the difference is really important for well-being because compassion actually creates resilience. Um, empathy is really important and it can lead to compassion, but it is that feeling what someone else is feeling or understanding what someone else is feeling as both of those things. And, and the feeling what someone else is feeling can lead to distress. Um, I mean, sharing in someone's extreme suffering can be really overwhelmingly painful. And and that's certainly, I'm one of those people that can scarcely watch the news because I just get thrown into fits of empathic distress. So <laughs> this was a really interesting discovery for me when I was looking through the research. And compassion is this amazing alternate response that actually generates positive effect. It's, it's caregiving and it's, it motivates action. Um, so where empathic distress can kind of paralyze you, compassion really motivates you to take action and in a very positive way. And I just always think back to this study that was done with Matthew Ricard, the really famous Buddhist monk and scientist who's always being put in an MRI machine because <laughs> he's such an interesting person. And they did that again. And this time they gave him these really distressing stories to read and said, you're not allowed to do compassion meditation. <laughs> and 
he got really distressed and didn't like it. And they looked at his brain and yes, all those kind of negative emotions lighting up. And then they said, okay, now let's do it again. And now you can do your stuff, whatever you normally do to cultivate compassion, right? And so he's like, oh, phew. And, <laughs> and they did it again. And lo and behold, they saw this positive effect areas of the brain lighting up. So even though he's reading these tragic stories, it's not affecting him in the same way at all. And it's really because this is this is the motivated, energized, caregiving emotion. So that was so inspiring to me. <laughs> so I really find that uh, something that I definitely personally want to cultivate and could clearly everyone would benefit from. And for anybody who does cultivate compassion, that's actually a benefit for everybody else as well. So yeah, I'd say that was a big one for me. That, that's... <clears throat> Just going on from what um, um, you were saying about Matthew Ricard, is that it that that's really interesting, isn't it? Because on a daily basis, um, yes. when we log into our social networks or log into our email, we're we're constantly reading um, stories of other people's mm. misfortune or yeah. negative things going on around the world. And you know, there have been, I remember reading a Pew study about this recently that it's possible to feel negative emotions from someone on the other side of the world by watching videos um, or, you know, of a rainy day, for example, or someone going through something negative. Like you can actually feel that if you're on the other side of the world. And and I guess that just becomes a really big problem if you don't know how to deal with that kind of emotional impact. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the difference between kind of, you know, it happens a lot in, in, in medicine that people get burned out, you know, in healthcare. And the difference between kind of getting burnt out or or carrying on. And and I just know these amazing people. I've had the opportunity to meet these amazing people that like work in the most difficult of jobs, you know, um, with the most tragic uh, scenarios, helping people in the most tragic situations. And they are the most energetic and vibrant people you can imagine. And I just look at them and think, and yet I can scarcely watch the news. Clearly, <laughs> right about <laughs> about what they're doing or how they are, and I need to learn more about that. And and that's really interesting. And that's certainly something that resilience, that compassionate resilience that they embody, is certainly something that, that we can all really benefit from. It's quite powerful. So, in the same way, then that you can project negative feelings um, through the internet. Do you also think that's the same thing for compassion? Can compassion be designed and be projected virally? Well, that is something I definitely want to find out. And I've done some preliminary look into that and looking at the research on compassion. And and one of the things that I've come across is that um, one difference is a feeling of empowerment or that feeling that you can do something and you know that's quite familiar i look if, if one looks at oh this incredible tragedy that's going on in the world and thousands of people are you know desperate or dying you're like oh I'm, i feel helpless and as soon as i feel helpless I, you know it's very depressing um if you feel that there there is something you can do then you're immediately going to take action that's 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 quite beneficial to the to the conversion so i think in our it's interesting because I noticed that when I came to Australia, growing up, I remember all of the ads for charities that were all very, very much eliciting sadness, eliciting pity, right? Showing the worst, most sad cases and then saying, please help us 
give us money so that we can help the situation. And I know almost everybody I know is just like, turn it off, turn away. Oh, no, I can't look at that. Oh, no. You know, whether it's the dogs and the, you know, the SPCA or whether it's starving children, it's hard. It's really hard. And, and then when I came to Australia, and it may just have been a coincidence of the time, it was the exact opposite. It was like, look at this. They've Look at this amazing thing. They've got this well now in the village. And so they have clean water and they're benefiting from the clean water. And, and it's so much better. And this is so wonderful what we've been able to do because of the help that you, that you give. So it was exactly the opposite. It was they were looking at the positive and what was possible and the positive side of it. And it was just, it felt so much more resilient really it felt you know it was you didn't have to turn away you didn't have to look away it was like oh that's fantastic great um now i haven't done any of the research on what brings in more fundraising but that is by far and away the approach that they take over here in australia and i look again i don't know the business behind that but i for one think that that is kind of a difference between I'm invoking empathic distress to kind of guilt you or distress you into giving money versus I'm invoking your sense of empowerment in this situation and capacity, competence, autonomy, ability to do something about this. And that's very positive. And, um, and it's really more like the compassion. So to me, that's in a sense, it's a design issue. How are you designing? Which photos are you showing? How are you framing the message? Um, and they're two opposite things. And I thought that was a really interesting difference. <clears throat> this is super interesting. Um, but earlier you were talking about this whole idea of designing for hedonic pleasure. And, um, and I wonder if you can just explain to us a little bit more about what that is and why that's so important because it sounds kind of like a good thing well usually when people talk about the hedonic they're just they're talking about positive emotions like pleasure and and those are really important to all theories of well-being but a lot of people argue that that's not really the whole picture that there's also elements of meaning um what's meaningful for us in terms of what it, what does it take to reach our full potential and those things often involve non-pleasure <laughs> they aren't necessarily focused around what's the most pleasure i can have right now in this moment um we often have to we often have to put that aside in order to reach uh, larger goals that will end up being more rewarding and more sustaining of our well-being. So um, meaning is another really interesting one. And um, and I think about, it's kind of like intrinsic motivation. There's the extrinsic motivator, motivators, which are really, which tend to be limited in how well they can motivate people. And then there's the real meaning behind something and that's much more powerful. So do this because I'll give you a reward for it versus do this because it's it's meaningful to you and you uh, intrinsically value it. And I, of, of an interesting example that starts with the very banal is um, Zen payroll. It's really interesting because payroll sounds really dry and boring. And you think, oh God, you have to, if you have to make some software for payroll, how could you ever tap into the meaning behind that? But really, the meaning behind paying people or their compensation is about appreciating the people you work with. It might be about praise, an opportunity for praise, opportunity for gratitude. And these are all uh, well-being determinants. They're all factors that contribute to all our well-being. So by tapping into those elements of meaning, 
through the software, you're really improving how that software, even in a context that's really dry and boring sounding at first, um, how well it can kind of foster well-being, and that's in the workplace. They, they kind of include these emails that make it easy to um, or encourage you to show appreciation for, for the people you're paying and stuff like that. So I thought that was a really interesting example. Dorian, um, where can people find out more about you and your work and connect with you? Yeah, definitely positivecomputing.org. We try to uh, keep uh, information up there that's relevant to the topic. And um, I'm also on Twitter. So uh, I, I love to hear from people working in this space. We can all work better and faster if we work together and connect up. So I'm Dorian underscore Peters on Twitter. Brilliant. Well, Dorian, thanks so much again for spending time with us. It's been a real pleasure having pleasure. you on the show. Likewise. Thank you.